There's a wonderful phrase in the collect for today, the prayer that Freya prayed at the end of our uh, sort of time of sung worship. God, the giver of life, whose Holy Spirit wells up within your church. And I wonder if you'd humor me and just close your eyes and uh, picture a well. Uh, Wells are places where water rises. Water gathers in and rises, and it's the water that enables us to have life. We draw upon it. This image of God the Holy Spirit rising up, almost unbidden from beneath our feet to nourish us, to sustain us. I just want to take a moment to invite the Holy Spirit to well up within your life, within the life of this church. Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us as we spend time in your presence. Your spirit would well up within us, transforming us and nourishing us and sustaining us for the week ahead. We pray that these words of scripture would be life-giving and transforming for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Another image of growth that I always enjoy is that of a flower. Sometimes some of you may have seen those time-lapse videos of a flower growing from the tiniest little shoot, uh, growing, 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 and then opening up into flower as day and night pass by on time-lapse photography. And uh, it seems to be true, doesn't it, that no matter how many paving stones or how much tarmac or concrete you put down, at some stage or another, the flowers, the plants will always break through. They will always grow and rise. I don't know very much about flowers. Uh, I know that Columbia Flower Market is uh, not very far from here every Sunday morning, and some of you who love flowers will go and buy your flowers there and really enjoy them. Uh, I could probably identify four or five flowers, but that's probably my limit. I'm I'm pretty confident I can manage a rose. I'm pretty confident I can manage a tulip. I know what a dandelion dandelion looks like. Is that okay? It's not a flower. Look, I've failed already. (laughs) I've just been told it's not... A daffodil, I could do a daff. I can probably do a bluebell and maybe a foxglove or a snowdrop. I can do a snowdrop. So that, that's about my limit. I'm not really a kind of flowery person. I like them. I think they're very pretty. Um, but the point about flowers is that you need them, you need the petals, you need the flower to open to be able to identify. And they all begin life as just little green shoots, don't they? And if you look at a, a garden full of green shoots, you wouldn't necessarily know exactly what was going to come up. Our back garden uh, had been left to go to meadow some years ago, and so all kinds of wildflower varieties come up. And uh, at the beginning of spring in February, March, as they're just starting to poke up green shoots, we have no idea what's going to turn up. And then different colors come about, and Sarah can identify them. I think that the New Testament letter of James is about a faith that flowers. It's about how we identify the green shoots of faith that are within us. And uh, we begin a new sermon series today, which is going to take us almost all the way up to Christmas, exploring this New Testament letter of James. The letter is all about the marks that identify, the the characteristics which, which demonstrate the substance of our faith. The letter is about the actual features of a life 
lived in obedience to Jesus. And that's why this metaphor of a faith that flowers is helpful for me to think about what's it going to look like for us as Christians to live obedient to Christ. I want to begin today by, uh, with this passage by telling us a little bit about uh, James, uh, the author, a bit of background to the book, and then to think a little bit about this opening passage on trials and temptations. Uh, and then I'm really excited that in the coming weeks we're going to have uh, various different preachers, uh, including uh, Freya and Morag and the Bishop of Stepney, so a great company of preachers there, uh, to open up the letter of James to us. But let's begin with a little bit of information about James. Here he is. Oh, no, we'll go back. That's James. We want James up. We don't want more and more. Oh, thank you. There's James. Um, there's an old icon of James. Who is this James? James is uh, thought to be the, the author of the letter of James. Is uh, thought by consensus amongst scholars to be the brother of Jesus. The brother of Jesus. Perhaps one of the brothers who came with the mother and brothers who were embarrassed by Jesus' teaching uh, in the synagogue, trying to call him out and gather him away. Do you remember that time when Jesus said, who are my mother and brothers, those who do the will of God? Uh, But we know that whatever embarrassment James might have felt about his brother Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry, we know that by the end, uh, James was one of Jesus' closest uh, followers and apostles. And in the resurrection appearances, uh, we believe that James was, uh, uh, was amongst those to whom Jesus appeared because he is described as an apostle, an elder, a pillar of the church. Paul in Galatians 2.9 writes that about James specifically. He says he's a pillar of the church. He was a leader of the church in Jerusalem, probably one of those key apostles and elders that are described in Acts chapter 15. Uh, The background to this letter was probably written fairly early. We think that because the letter doesn't concern itself very much with some of the questions that you might expect to arise a little later on in the first century when the mission to the Gentiles is firmly underway. It's very much addressed to a Jewish Christian audience, the early church, when the followers of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, were still perceived as a sect within first century Judaism. So look at chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. This is a a reference to the identity of Israel, the, the twelve tribes a typical way of describing a diaspora Jewish identity. The letter itself is thought to be a compilation of short sermons to Jewish Christians scattered by the persecution that arose after the martyrdom of Stephen. That's recorded in Acts 16, you remember when Stephen is stoned and a great persecution breaks out and Jewish followers of Jesus, the early church community, was spread uh, throughout all the neighboring nations. It wasn't safe for them to stay in Jerusalem and many of them fled and traveled. How do we get our head around what this context might look like? Well, I think it's helpful to think about a more contemporary example, that of the uh, Syrian Christian population. Now, in the mid-20th century, Christians in Syria represented about 30% of the total population of the country. That's a large population, a large amount. In the last few years, it's thought to be down to under 10%. Still a fairly significant number. We might forget that from time to time. Um, But many, many Syrian Christians have fled the country, particularly in the last uh, five years since the outbreak of the Syrian conflict. Tens of thousands have fled across the border to Lebanon, Jordan, or making their way across to Europe. 
So let's have our next person. This is the Supreme Pontiff of the Universal Syriac Orthodox Church of Antioch and all the East, more and more Ignatius Aphrem II. He was uh, uh, elected and appointed um, two years ago in 2014. And his church and his office is in Damascus. You can imagine that life is pretty tough in Syria at the moment. It's pretty tough for uh, more and more Ignatius and his flock and his congregation. Well, perhaps it might be helpful to imagine him writing emails to the various uh, members of his congregation, of his flock, who have fled Syria in the past few years. Sending out little missives to those who are in Lebanon, sending out an email or a message or a letter, making contact with those who have made it into Turkey or into Europe, keeping in contact, reminding them to stay strong in the face of adversity to keep firm in their Christian faith. Well, we can get our heads around that, can't we? Because it's all happening at the moment. In the last five or ten years, we've seen an enormous amount of uh, diaspora movements spreading out of Christian populations in the Middle East because of conflict, violence, and persecution. That's the same thing that is happening within five or ten years of Jesus' death and resurrection. So cast your mind back to, you know, AD 35, 6, 7, 8, 9 to the early AD 40s after Jesus' death and resurrection when this new community, the the new community of believers, followers of Jesus are being scattered and spread around because of persecution. And James, their apostle, their elder, this pillar of the church, is writing to encourage and strengthen this um, Christian population. The persecuted Christians in the early church faced a temptation, and the temptation was this. It was to blend in with the surrounding culture and not to live a distinctive life, lest they be identified as followers of Jesus and then be persecuted or put to death. The temptation for them is to let Christianity simply be a private religion of the head and the heart, not to be seen in practical expressions in how we live our lives. Now, this was relatively easy in the culture of the Greco-Roman world. There were plenty of mystery cults, so-called mystery cults, where you could go and gather in a little secretive society and do peculiar rituals, do your own thing, and then you could leave and get on with everyday life, carry on with emperor worship, carry on participating in uh, public life in the normal way. You could maintain your special gods and your rituals without causing a fuss or attracting attention. This must have been tempting for those first followers of Jesus facing persecution, facing possible death. And James is writing to remind them that their faith must flower. It must be identifiable by its distinctive works. When James writes in chapter 2, verse 26, faith without works is dead, it's as though he's summarizing the theme of the whole letter. Now, we may find this challenging, as we've so often prioritized the simple faith of the believer without wanting to emphasize any rituals or works that must be performed to give us access to the grace of God in Jesus. You can see how actually uh, the culture of our time may not be so very different to the culture of the first century. Our society is one in which, in the privacy of your own home, you can sort of practice whatever religious rituals you want. You can sort of do your own thing, so long as you don't unsettle public life or challenge the powers that be. 
If you want to live a privatized Christian life, if you want to make it just a matter of your head and your heart in the privacy of your own home, you can, according to the rules of our secular society. That's what they'd prefer you to do. James is saying a Christian cannot. Now, we find this challenging partly because we've spent many hundreds of years prioritizing uh, the simple uh, gift of faith that God gives to us, putting simple trust in Jesus Christ. Isn't this what St. Paul was on about all the time? John Calvin said this, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. And I think that gets to the heart of the question. We are saved simply by trusting in what God has done for us in Christ. But if we are saved by faith, that will never be the end of the story. There will always be more. Next year will mark the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation in Europe. Martin Luther and John Calvin, the uh, prime architects of that movement. And of course, they were partly reacting against a very, very um, formalized set of religious expectations about what you should do to participate in the life of the church. And in their context, in their day, it was absolutely vital that they reminded us and the world that the gift of God in Jesus Christ is a free gift, unmerited, unearned, undeserved. It comes to us with love, with grace. But sometimes we've overemphasized that and thought that that is the end of the story. And John Calvin, even then, was exactly right. There is more to be said about what faith will look like. Tim Keller suggests in his book, Generous Justice, that the only way that we can be certain that this gospel of grace, this free gift of faith, has penetrated our hearts and taken root is when our lives become more and more deeply characterized by love and mercy overflowing in compassionate ministries in the world. In other words, if you say that the gospel of Jesus Christ has penetrated your hearts and you have responded and you are a believer, but that's the end of the story and you do nothing more, well, then you might need to ask some really serious questions of yourself about whether that gospel truly has taken root. But if you want to know that you've received and responded to the free gift of Jesus Christ, look at your lives. Are you becoming more merciful, more compassionate, more generous? If so, the gospel of Jesus Christ has taken root and is now bearing uh, fruit coming to flower, to mix and blend the metaphors. In other words, the works themselves don't make you a Christian, but without a transformed way of life, you can't really be sure that you're abiding in Christ. And we're going to see this as a recurring theme in this letter as we go through. What will it look like to live a Christian life? What will be the practical outworking of saying that you are a follower of Jesus? What will distinguish you from everybody else in the world? How is your way of life going to be different to that of your neighbor? Now, having introduced us to the overall theme of the letter of James, I want to turn to this opening passage specifically that Vera read for us, entitled Trials and Temptations. We need to remember that we live in a disordered and a chaotic world. It's therefore inevitable that we will all face difficult times 
in life. It's part of the big story of our Christian faith. We live in a world which was created, beautiful by God, uh, a, a world full of potential, uh, ready to be um, cultivated, to bring forth fruit, to develop, to mature, to become perfected. And all of this was meant to be done with this beautiful cooperation and participation of, uh, of God and his creation, his human creation, made in his image, his stewards, his faithful ones who were going to be co-workers in this work of uh, cultivating creation and bringing forth good things. But we know that through human disobedience, pride and arrogance, the world has become disordered. Subject to futility is the way Paul uh, puts it in Romans 8. Decaying, frustrated. And as such, people are going to get sick. People are going to have car crashes. People are going to have accidents. People are going to have relational difficulties and breakdowns. These things are going to happen in life. We are going to face trials. People will act cruelly towards you. You will act cruelly towards others because we are disordered and chaotic. And despite sometimes our best intentions, our disordered desires get the better of us. It's inevitable that we will face trials. And I think it can sometimes feel even worse when we are a Christian, as we are going against the flow. I recall here, and I love that story about um, uh, an American man, Herman, his name was, um, who was driving along uh, on the freeway, I think they call it in America, um, not the motorway, is that right, the freeway? And, uh, and he was driving along when his car phone rang, and he answered it, and it was his, uh, in the days when you were allowed to do this without getting by. He um, answered his car phone, and his wife said, Herman, watch out. I've been listening to the radio, and apparently there's some maniac driving his car the wrong way along the freeway. Be very careful out there. To which Herman replied, Darling, it's not just one maniac driving their car the wrong way. There are hundreds of them. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we repent, we turn to go in his direction, we find ourselves going against the way of the world, going against the grain, swimming upstream, and it's going to be difficult. So James doesn't say, verse 2, if you face trials of many kinds, he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, they are going to come, one time or another. Trials are the external pressures on our lives. Trials are putting up with a world where people's selfishness and ambition and their own greed means that people are clashing against one another. We struggle to get on because our own selfish interests and ambition are kind of pulling us apart from one another. Trials are uh, those times when the seemingly chaotic stuff of illness or uh, redundancy or some accident occurs. They're the external pressures on our life and faith, and they can leave us feeling helpless and frustrated. We can struggle to navigate our way. We can find ourselves thinking, what's the point? Why is it all so difficult? 
But God can help us navigate through the trials and can transform them so that our faith develops and matures through the trials. You know, it's been said, be careful if you ever pray to God to give you patience for you'll find yourself in far many, many more cues. Yeah, and I think that's true because every time we get stuck in a queue at the checkout or, uh, or in the traffic jam, we get frustrated. It's in our way. It's a great chance to develop our patience. God can transform our perspective if we will allow him. I love the passage in Romans 5 where St. Paul writes um, that we uh, rejoice in our sufferings for sufferings develop perseverance and perseverance develops character and character develops hope and hope does not disappoint us for God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. God can take the suffering that we experience and through them mold and shift that perseverance, character, hope. God works all things together for good for those who love him. And this idea of perseverance, perseverance is mentioned several times in the passage. It's mentioned there in verse 3. You know, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Then again in verse 4, perseverance must finish its work so that you'll be mature and complete. And again in verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Happy are you when you persevere. Why is perseverance so important? Well, I think it's fundamental to our Christian faith. I think it is the mirror image, the analog of God's faithfulness. God is faithful towards us. We celebrate his steadfast love and faithfulness in the words of the Psalms and the words of our worship songs, right? Well, faithfulness is the same as perseverance. It's keeping on going, being constant in trust and commitment to one another. God perseveres with you. When you're acting in a way that's a bit rubbish, when I'm acting in a way that's a bit contrary and a bit ridiculous, God perseveres with us. He keeps on going with us. He's faithful to us. And our response is to mirror him. Uh, Created in his image, we are faithful to him. We persevere with him. So persevere through trials, those external pressures in life. And beware temptation. Look at verses 13 to 15. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Well, that's helpful. That's clear, isn't it? Temptation doesn't come from God. Where does it come from then? Each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. James gives us this wonderful anatomy of sin. Just as the world is disordered and chaotic, so too our lives, our hearts, our desires are disordered and chaotic. And sometimes, despite uh, our best intentions, the evil desires of our hearts take over. They well up within us. Not the Holy Spirit welling up within us, but some evil desire wells up within us. Each one is tempted when, because of their own evil desire, they are dragged away and enticed. And after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when full grown, gives birth to death. You see how temptation is distinguished from sin. Temptation when conceived within us, can then be nurtured and grow and result and give birth to sin. It's not sin in and of itself. But if we do not cut it off, if we do not uh, resist it, turn, repent, 
ask for the Holy Spirit to well up and if you like flood the evil desires within our hearts then it can grow and result in sin we must be on guard for what temptation can birth within us So trials are the external pressures, temptations the internal pressures on our lives. But we do not lose heart. For God is the good father, the true gardener, the giver of gifts, verse 17. Look at verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. He chose to plant us green shoots that will come and blossom into beautiful flowers that will reveal the substance of our faith and will bring delight and joy to the world. Each one of you is planted as a beautiful flower to bear witness to Jesus Christ. God has chosen you. He's chosen me that we might blossom and flower. We need not fear the external trials nor the internal temptations which seem to thwart or frustrate God's intentions. God can transform the desires of our hearts by his spirit welling up within us and he can work through the suffering and the trials that we experience in the world to bring us to maturity in faith. So that the gospel of Jesus Christ may be seen and may be evident in the way that we live in our very lives would you like to stand we're going to pray and Steve's going to come and lead us uh, in a song as we respond and I think that the um, The reality of this is that we can feel overwhelmed by trials and temptations. We can lose heart. We can lose confidence in God's ability to hold us fast through all the different things that we face. So I'm going to, as we pray, I'm going to invite you, if you know that you are going through a particular trial at the moment, perhaps it's um, joblessness, perhaps it's uh, a relationship breakdown, perhaps it's um, some issue that is external to you, some uh, frustration or, or persecution that you are facing. God can take these external trials and can bring you to greater maturity in Christ through them. He can transform all that appears evil and work it for good in you. And if you are struggling with a temptation something that's welling up from inside you and you know that it's not of God then we pray that the Holy Spirit would well up in you and uh, by the floodwaters of his presence in your life would would drown and put to death uh, all of those temptations and evil desires that draw us away from the life of faith in Jesus So, Father, as we worship, as we sing, I pray that you would come and move in our hearts, move in our lives. Pour out your spirit, we pray now. Pour out your spirit on your children, each of us.